Matthew chapter 10, we'll look at verse 16 through the end of the chapter. And uh, I want to ask this question as a sort of a title, and uh, maybe it's a little bit provocative, and maybe the answer is obvious, but it gets us thinking. question is, are we greater than our master? Are we greater than our master? We've probably all experienced this. Uh, someone calls you on the phone. Someone comes to your house. Someone uh, knocks on your door or the doctor comes into the room and asks that peculiar yet familiar question. The question is, do you want the good news or the bad news? Now, psychologists say that they can predict, based on your personality types and other, other things in your life, which one you would rather hear first. Do you want the good news so it can temper your attitude and prepare you for the bad news? Or do you want the bad news first so that you can take it in a positive perspective of the negative? Now, many of you know that uh, as a child, I was homeschooled throughout my growing up years. So my mother then was my rigid instructor. And uh, she instilled in me the attitude of do the worst first. Whatever subject in school at the time was my least favorite or I was least inclined to do, she would tell me, do that one first. Use your energy and your effort to get through the difficult and then the rest will seem like a breeze. I'd like to think that I can still hear my mother's voice throughout life and that's followed me as an adult. And uh, But as an adult, you have more and more opportunity for a middle option. See, sometimes you can choose the good news first or the bad news first, or you can choose our favorite option, which is procrastination. I'm just gonna push it off. Sometimes the best option in life seems not to be the worst first, but the worst never. Avoidance plagues many of us. But the problem is the difficult things in life are always coming. They are always looming. They cannot really be escaped, even if they're postponed for a later date. Well, the idea of good news first or bad news first is very much present in our text today. I want to start just by reading that. Matthew 10, beginning in verse number 16. I would encourage you to follow along if you brought your own copy of scripture. If not, listen carefully as I read. Matthew 10, 16, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues. You will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake but the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. 
It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Verse 26, so have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them falls. Not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Verse 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword, for I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet, because he's a prophet, receive a prophet's reward. The one who receives a righteous person, because he's a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no, no means lose his reward. Before we go on, let's pray. Ask the Lord to help us to understand these words today. Father, thank you for these ancient truths ever true. And uh, may we hear them in their context. May we hear them as the words of the Lord Jesus Christ, who we read and sung of earlier as the creator and sustainer of all things the radiance of the glory of God who has made atonement for sin and has sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. May we take these words as from our Lord, our master. May we hear them and help us, Lord, to do them. And in Christ's name we pray, amen. I want you to notice Jesus' comment in verse number 24 specifically, it answers our question. So uh, maybe you can leave now because this is the answer. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. In the rest of the passage, Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples, but he's also sort of tipping his cards, to use a saying, to reveal his own fate. All of this warning about persecution and division would first and primarily be experienced by Jesus himself, even before his disciples. Now, if you followed the passage closely, you might have noticed a little pattern. Bad news, good news. Bad news, good news. And for our purpose today, I want to frame that as warning comfort. Warning 
and comfort. And you might see that on your outline. Now, as Matt showed us last week, Jesus is commissioning his disciples for their first journey, their first mission on their own. He's sending them out with the message of the kingdom. And even in that passage, we began to see warning signs, things that might not always be easy. Remember in verse number 14, Jesus said this to them, if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake the dust off from your feet when you leave that house or town. So they were already told that there would be a noticeable constituency. There would be a a sizable group of people who would not receive them or the message of Christ's kingdom. And that was sort of the initial warning. But in verse 16, Jesus starts to let them know that it's going to be more than just a simple receive or not receive problem. There will be passive rejection, those who just ignore the message. But there will also be active rejection as well. Also, I'd like to know, and and Matt made this point clear last week, there's a sense in which the text verses 1 through 15, is very specific for this initial sending that Jesus does, this first mission. The instructions had to do with just the Jewish cities and villages that the disciples would go to. But as Jesus amplifies his teaching here in the following verses, it becomes clear that his warnings and his comforts extend beyond that first mission as well. So in a real sense, these warnings and comforts look to apply to us today as Jesus' followers in our common era. The warnings include persecution and division, two things that have been experienced almost universally throughout the centuries by followers of Christ. There are seasons in which Local experience of these things sort of waxes and wanes, but there's never been a generation of Christ followers that hasn't come up against persecution and division because of the name of Christ. So in this case, we know, of course, Jesus as the great physician, right? Well, in this case, Jesus is like that doctor that comes into the examining room and gives it to us straight. So we'll see this today. As Jesus promised, Christians will experience persecution and division because of his name, of Christ's name. But the providence of God and the eternal value of the mission give us great comfort. Well, let's jump right in. We see first warning number one. And uh, this is the longest section, verses 16 through 25. And this is about persecution. Persecution. Of course, we can hardly forget that we've already seen this topic of persecution covered in the Gospel of Matthew. And that was the final beatitude in Matthew 5 where Jesus says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. 
Now, if you were here for that, uh, those studies in the Sermon on the Mount, you might remember uh, sort of the definition that we gave. Persecution is by definition to be subjected to systematic harassment and attack due to your religious belief or affiliation. And the word that Jesus means or used is literally means to be pursued, chased, or driven away, harassed, or hunted. And that makes it pretty vivid. In other words, persecution isn't bad luck or a, a series of misfortunes that happens to you. You know, if you wake up late and you can't find a clean shirt and you get a flat tire on your way to work and you spill your coffee on your lap, that's not really persecution. That's, that's just a bad day. Sorry, I don't have much help for you there. But there is real persecution in which people, because of the name of Christ, are pursued, harassed, chased, driven away, hunted. Now, in most translations in Matthew 10, the word persecution doesn't actually come up, but it's almost that it's so vividly described in this passage that we don't need the word itself. We could hardly go anywhere except Matthew 10 to find a better definition for it. So instead of taking more time to define it, let's just jump right into the text. Verse number 16 says, Behold, Jesus says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Often Jesus begins with a metaphor or an illustration, and he does here with the image of four different animals, sheep, wolves, snakes, and doves. And we could ask Jesus, why the zoo, right? What can we make of this? Well, he says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. And it doesn't take much of an imagination to get that picture. The allusion to Christians or Jesus followers as sheep is so common in scripture and the allusion to fierce enemies as wolves has already come up as well in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 15, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now, as Jesus sends them, it's interesting. He says, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. He speaks in the present tense. The disciples are already sheep and the wolves are already surrounding them. The clear and present danger, if you want to call it that, is not a surprise or an anomaly to Jesus. He is well aware of the difficulties, the rejection, and the disposition of dismissal that he and his disciples are facing. And we're reminded of that great prophecy about our Lord in Isaiah 53, which says of him, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. So rejection, even violent rejection, was not a surprise, actually. And we will see more about this in later in this passage. We'll see that it was on the radar of God's wisdom and his providence the whole time. Jesus then gives them instruction, and here's where the other two animals come in. Sheep, wolves, then he says, so be wise as serpent and harmless or innocent as doves. A snake is prudent and wise and sensible. You may not like snakes. I don't like snakes. 
But if you observe a snake, you'll notice that there's no wasted energy, no wasted motion, no needless gestures and noise. Everything is calculated and geared to their survival and flourishing. They basically stay put or move very slowly until it's time to strike. One thing you might say about a snake is it may be dangerous, but it's not reckless. And Jesus says to his disciples, be wise as serpents. In other words, you know that you're going into a difficult mission field. Don't waste your movements. Make them count. Don't act recklessly, but be ready. Be ready. And at the same time, he says to be harmless as doves. Snakes are not known as harmless, although some and many of them are. And doves are not known for their wisdom, they're birds. But when you pair the two in their, their two descriptions, it's quite a personality. A snake is subtle. A, a snake is, is street smart, you might say, ready for attack and wise. But a dove wouldn't harm a soul except maybe a bug or a worm. Jesus is saying, be wise and aware, but don't cause any unnecessarily, unnecessary trouble or violence. Jesus' message, his gospel, would be plenty divisive enough without the disciples inciting their own personal drama and creating a scene. We would be prudent to look at this warning. When we interact with, with people outside of the faith who don't know Jesus Christ, we know that generally we're probably outnumbered. We know that in this day and age, hostility is on the rise in our culture toward the Bible and Christ and Christianity. But may the accusation of belligerence never stick. In other words, may we never create our own personal drama for the name of Christ. His name and his gospel are life-giving, but they are offensive as well. May we be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. We read on. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. Now, here's the part of the warning where we begin to see further into the future, because we don't have any indication in Scripture that these things happened on this first mission. There's no there's no record of history that tells us on this first mission, while Jesus was still alive, that these things happened to the disciples. And in this first mission, we have specific instruction by Jesus that they were only to go to the Jewish villages and cities. So obviously, Jesus is looking ahead now here, perhaps even seeing to our own day. But more than seeing just to our day, Jesus was seeing himself in the prediction as well. He says, you will be delivered over to courts, like the Sanhedrin, perhaps. You will be flogged in synagogues. You will be dragged before governors. You will be dragged before kings. And what took place in the week of our Lord's passion, except this very thing. Dragged before a court, 
flogged in the synagogues, dragged before governors like Pilate, dragged before kings, even if a puppet king like Herod. Now, certainly in the book of Acts, we will read how many of Jesus' disciples faced these very things. But think of it. Before they ever imagined it happening to themselves, Jesus faced all of these things. We we haven't gotten there yet, but we can already see that verse, that key verse again. Is a disciple greater than his teacher? Jesus is foreshadowing his own experience, his own suffering and passion, and he's opening up a picture of the future, a future that his disciples would live in, a future that we live in. We have not faced these persecutions in our nation, in our day, but many of our brothers and sisters around the globe face these very things. Let's read on. Verse 19, when they deliver you over, do not be anxious about how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And because Jesus is looking into the future and not just this initial mission, we can take these words as a comfort, really, within this warning for us as well. He says here, in a sense, Don't spend your time being worked up about what you will do in that moment. I remember in college walking often, probably every day, by a painting on the hallway of two men, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. And this painting was of these two Englishmen being burned at the stake in England, essentially for spreading the gospel. It was during the time of the Reformation. There was a lot of animosity toward those type of men. This is the, let's see if it comes up. This is the painting. And uh, the famous quote that comes from that very true story is Hugh Latimer on the stake saying to his friend Ridley, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. Now that example is 500 years ago, not quite. And time wouldn't permit to tell of thousands who faced similar fates before that And since that time for the gospel, that's one illustration of this happening in history. But when you hear heroic and fateful words like that of someone who is actively being burned at the stake, you wonder if you could ever imagine having anything to say at all in that instance. A couple of years ago, if you remember the the Christians in Egypt who were lined up and they were all massacred because of Jesus Christ. And you ask yourself questions. If I were in that moment, would I have the strength to even say, yes, I'm a Christian, now cut my head off? Well, Jesus' words here come in and he says, you don't have to think about what you're gonna say on that day. Your father will give you the strength to endure and the words to speak in that moment. For a young man like myself, I look forward in the future of our own nation and see the very real probability of persecution simply for believing the scripture. And I look forward with some trepidation and wonder, will I have the strength 
when I'm 70 years old and they want to put me in prison because I'm a pastor. And in my own strength, I probably would say, I don't think so. But to that kind of question, Jesus says, don't be anxious about what you will say on that day. And without saying it, Jesus is saying, think about what you have right now. What you have to do right now. Don't work yourself up about that moment. Follow the Lord through life. And if and when that day comes, his grace will be sufficient in the moment. And he will give you the strength to endure and speak. Now, this promise doesn't apply to every situation in life. Of course, we're, we're told to be ready as Christians to give an answer to those who ask us about the hope that was, is within us. So we should know what to say when somebody asks us about Jesus, about our peace, about the love and the forgiveness that he shares. But in that moment, in that, in that dire situation, Christ's strength, the spirit of the Father will help us. We'll read on. Verse 21, brother will deliver brother over to death and the father his child and children will rise against parents and have them put to death and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the son of man comes. Jesus is saying here, this persecution will be personal brother against brother, father against child, child against parents. And we'll see this later in the passage, so we'll leave it there for now. But note, Jesus says, you will be hated by all for my name's sake. Jesus is specific. Again, just like having a bad day isn't persecution, well, it's also not really persecution if it's not for Jesus' name's sake. It's not just general dislike. If you're just a rude person, and people don't like you, that doesn't mean it's Christian persecution. It may just because you're a rude person and people don't like you. But if you're persecuted for the name of our Lord, for following him sincerely, Jesus' warning applies. You will be hated for my name's sake. Notice specifically verse 23. It says, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. We can't spend a lot of time here, but this verse has been a challenge to Bible teachers for centuries because it's hard to interpret just what Jesus meant by, you will not have gone through all of the towns before the Son of Man comes. Firstly, Jesus is the Son of Man, and he was already there. So he must have been referring to a, another coming, a future time. Did he mean that they would not have reached all the towns of Israel before his second coming? Well, if that's the case, that time frame is still going on because he's not come back yet, though he is. I'll give you what I think is a very plausible interpretation. You don't have to agree with me. But then after that, I'll give you an application that I think is fitting, regardless of what you think this means. Jesus, I think, was may have been actually referring to the prophecy in Daniel 7 that refers to the Son of Man coming to the Ancient of Days. I want to read some of this. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. 
And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Notice the Son of Man there comes to the Ancient of Days after he's finished his work. Well, if Jesus is the Son of Man and he is said to have come to God or the Ancient of Days, when would that have been? Well, it would have been at his ascension, after his death, burial, and resurrection. He would come to the Ancient of Days and sit down as king of his kingdom. And I think that fits with Jesus' kingdom motif he's been talking about, and he's sending the disciples to preach the kingdom. So if that's what Jesus was referring to, then likely he was saying that this message would not have reached even all the towns of Israel before his burial, his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension. Now, you might disagree with that or agree with it. It's, it's fine. It's not a huge deal. We can still be friends. But here's an application that's meaningful regardless of how you interpret this passage. Jesus is saying the spread of this gospel is never complete. If you're bogged down in one town by rejection and persecution, go to the next because there are more and more people to tell, always more people to reach. I recently heard the statistic at a conference that Lizzie and I went to that nearly 3.5 billion people across the world have not heard the name of Jesus, let alone what he has done. Can you imagine three and a half billion people that have not heard the name of Jesus in a meaningful way? And that number is rising. Jesus says, go to the next towns. Keep going because your work won't be done before I go to the Father. The work of the gospel is not complete until God says it is complete. Moving on, verse 24, a disciple is not above his teacher. It is not enough for the, or it is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus closes this warning by saying this, if they do these things to me, you should expect they will do them to you. Dear one, we have lived in a state of relative ease as Christians in this country. But Jesus says, if the world hates you, know that it hated me before it hated you. We have no real reason to believe that comfortable and cultural Christianity is to be the norm. Jesus speaks to his disciples, and I truly believe he speaks to us and says, it will be difficult. There will be persecution. Expect it, but embrace it. Because as he said earlier, blessed are the persecuted, for theirs is the kingdom. And I want to give you this comfort before we move on to Jesus' comfort. Persecution is not a sign that the gospel is losing. Persecution is a sign that the gospel is working just as Jesus said it would. So that's the first warning and the long warning. 
persecution. But next we see a comfort. The essential comfort in these next verses is God the Father's providential care. It starts with have no fear. Have no fear of them, he says, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed. Nothing is hidden that will not be known. All things will be revealed. Those who are evil will eventually be revealed in their evil. And what is right will eventually be revealed as being right. But also Jesus opens up new pathways for the gospel here because he says, what I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim it on the housetops. You may remember a couple instances where Jesus had told someone who he healed or delivered, don't tell anyone who I am just yet. Well, now that warning is all over. Jesus says, it's time for the gospel to go forth freely. What you've heard whispered, yell it from the housetop. What you've seen in the dark, spread it in the light. Nothing that's hidden will not be revealed. And he sends them proclaiming this, knowing that it's going to get him killed in the process. But that's part of the plan. And that's why he can say what he says next. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Don't fear those who can kill the body, like the Jewish court that will condemn Jesus to death or the Roman soldiers who would carry out orders to crucify him. Do not fear those who can kill the body like those who stoned Stephen in the book of Acts as the first Christian martyr. Do not fear those who can kill the body like those people who slaughtered those Egyptian Christians just a couple years ago, but rather fear him who is above body and soul the one who determines ultimate destiny and ultimate outcome. And I've asked myself this in trying times. Am I afraid more of death and dying, or am I more afraid of God who gives life and has numbered our days, even numbered the hairs of our head, and who determines our ultimate destiny? And with that question in mind, we get some of the most powerful words of Jesus about the providence of God that are ever spoken. He says this, he goes back to an illustration. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? That was true in those days. You could buy two sparrows for a penny. They actually were sold for food, the cheapest of food, the cheapest of meat. So even these cheapest Birds, which are usually used as food, he says this, not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, if I had written that, I would have said this, not one of them will fall to the ground because of your father. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus says not one will fall to the ground apart from your father. Jesus is using the sparrows, which he says are, are of much less value than disciples, as an illustration of those who are persecuted even unto death. And he's saying not one of them, and we can imply, he looks at the disciples, not one of you will fall apart from your father. Now, how is that comforting? 
How is it comforting to know that God sees everything, knows everything, uh, to some degree ordains all things, yet sparrows fall and people still die in persecution? It is in these questions that we must remember who God is. Psalm 100 verse 5 says, the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Ephesians 1, Paul tells us, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. And Romans 8, which Scott mentioned earlier, Verse 28, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. What do we see in those texts? That's just a general survey. We see that God is good. He is always good. God allows and orders everything in his wisdom. And God works things together for good for those who love him. So if God sees the sparrow fall, if he sees his own children persecuted and he allows it and he's aware of it and to some degree he's even ordained it in his wisdom and we know that God doesn't do anything haphazardly, he doesn't do anything evil, but he does everything by his own wisdom, then we know that nothing is meaningless. Even the persecution is not meaningless. There is no meaningless suffering, death, or persecution for Jesus' followers. All of it is under God's watch care for his glorious purpose in his wisdom, and it is being worked for good by his sovereign hand. Therefore, we do not fear fill in the blank. Government, friends, family, persecution, death, disease, slander. Why? Because we know that not one of us falls or suffers apart from our Father. And our days and our times are in his hands. He who sees the sparrow fall, he who has even the hairs of your head numbered, does not allow one ounce of meaningless suffering to befall you. Second warning, quickly. Warning number two has to do with division. Jesus says, do not think I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now we take this verse obviously in the full context of scripture And we know that Jesus does bring peace. He's called the Prince of Peace. So we can read this verse really as, do not think that I have come only to bring peace. I have not come only to bring peace, but a sword. While the gospel makes peace between God and man, reconciling that great divide, it doesn't always keep peace on the surface, person against person. When it means the uprooting of family or culture or tradition. In that sense, the gospel is very much a dividing sword in our world that asks the question, will you follow Jesus or will you remain in your own ways? We saw earlier that persecution can be very personal, and here this division can be very personal as well. He says, 
he says in verse number 35, I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. We are called to honor our parents, love and obey them as children. We're called to honor uh, all people as much as possible to live with peace with them. But in the final analysis, when it comes right down to the heart of it, right down to the moment of truth, Jesus says, my message will cause division between those who follow me and those who do not. And in this case, we might keep a relationship with people, but there will be no true peace if we sacrifice the truth of Jesus for that relationship. Jesus' words are pointed. He says, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Same about son and daughter. Same about whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This is difficult, but it's also freeing. We must love Jesus Christ, treasure him, and adore him supremely above all, even our family, even our parents, even our spouses, even our children. And you might be thinking, what could that possibly look like? How could that possibly be good? How could it possibly be the right thing? Well, as parents, it might look like upholding God's truth in righteous ways in your home, even as your children grow, maybe to despise them. As a spouse, it might look like leading firmly but lovingly toward Jesus, keeping Christ in the home, even if the other spouse despises him. As a child, it may look like following Jesus with your own life's decisions, even if your unbelieving parents disapprove of what you're doing. At the conference that Lizzie and I just attended, we had the privilege of hearing from a pastor named Afshin Ziafat. Afshin is the immigrant son of an Iranian family that came to the U.S. about 20 years ago. He was born and raised into a very devout Muslim household, His father is a medical doctor, and he always wanted his son to follow in his footsteps. Even once they moved to the United States, his father was able to establish a very successful private practice, and he offered to pass that practice down to his son, Afshin. Well, that all became an issue when Afshin came to know the Lord Jesus as his savior. He was shunned and disowned by his family, But it went further than that even, because his father said, even if you're a Christian, if you will follow my footsteps and be a doctor, I'll I'll still give you my practice. So there was a little hope. But one day Ashen came to his father and told him that he was going to stop medical school to pursue seminary to become a Christian minister, which he is today. And his father said, You have brought our family immense shame. You are as good to me, dead. In this case, within our own nation, in our own day, the gospel literally turned father against son. But Ashton had no real choice because to him, Jesus was and is everything. And even that prospect of success and even the prospect of family was not more worthy 
than following the Lord Jesus. These words of Jesus may sting. They're very real, though. Following Jesus is ultimately death to self, death to earthly desires, death to whimsical passions, death to expressive individualism, death to our our natural loves, which we might chase after, and being alive to Christ. Verse 39, or verse 38, is the first mention of the cross, where Jesus says, whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And Jesus isn't speaking of his own cross here specifically. But by comparing the walk of discipleship to bearing a cross, this fits right in with Jesus' predictions that we've already read. The disciples knew what a cross was. Little did they expect their own Lord and Master to be the first among their ranks to carry one to his own crucifixion. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. That man I mentioned, Afshin Ziafat, he has lost father and mother. He has lost a career in the medical as a medical doctor. He has lost great inheritances and earthly comforts, but he has not lost his life. He has found truly life in following Jesus Christ. These examples, these pictures, these thoughts may seem severe to you. They may have never crossed your mind. They may not even be a realistic expectation, but do you look at these words of Jesus and have you considered them? Have you considered the eternal weight of following Jesus? Lastly, we see in the last couple of verses, the second comfort, but has to do with reception. And this comfort really starts in that verse 39, the prospect of finding life, truly. It's often stated in our modern society that to find yourself, self-exploration, is the highest pursuit. It's almost unquestionable. But for Jesus, finding yourself means losing yourself. And for Jesus, finding life means possibly losing this one. But that life that you find is eternal. John 3, we read these words. As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life life. Eternal life is Christ's kingdom coming to bear in our own lives now. Eternal life has a future, but it's also a present possession. It's a new kind of life where everything is geared toward Christ, his fullness, his goodness, his joy, his peace, his satisfaction. Have you found life in Christ? Jesus says in verse 40, whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. This idea of receiving, and if you read down, receiving the prophet or the righteous person is the idea of receiving the one who sent him. And in this case, those who received the disciples were truly receiving 
the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said, or John said rather, that Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to those who did, he gave the right to become children of God who were born, not of the will of flesh or the will of man, but of God. There it is, that new birth, that new life. Have you received Jesus in this new birth, this new life? It means more than simply believing that he existed. Have you taken him at his words, his gospel message, his forgiveness, redemption? Have you accepted his claims, his lordship? This is an eternal matter. Does it lead to earthly peace? Not always, but it leads to peace ultimately. Does it lead to earthly trouble-free living? Not always. Persecution is a real possibility. But will it be worth it in the end? There's no doubt. And is it worth it right now? There's no doubt. I'll close with this. Paul said in another verse in Romans 8, said, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I know we've gone long, but all these warnings and comforts, what what do you make of them? Have you followed this Jesus? Have you cast yourself upon him and his mercy? The stakes are high. They are here and now, but they are also forever. May we trust in him, our Savior, who tells us, like a doctor, he gives it to us straight, but he doesn't leave us comfortless, even in these things. Lord Jesus, these words are not easy to hear, but they are good to hear because they are true. They are backed by your own suffering, your own resurrection, your own kingship now as you sit on the right hand of God the Father. We have seen them played out in thousands, millions of lives throughout the centuries. And if they're played out in ours, Lord Jesus, it seems like a fearful task, but you've promised you will give us the words to say, the strength to endure. And above all, our Father is over it. And our Father does not allow anything that is meaningless for his children. He did not allow anything meaningless to you, Lord Jesus, including when you went to the cross to bear this first and great realization of this suffering. And in that bearing of our sin, you paved a way for this eternal life. And even if we lose our temporary life, even if we lose father, mother, daughter, son, we have you. We have you. May we treasure you and give you the glory. In Christ's name, amen.